What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and help those three subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. I am very excited for another special nostalgic quarantine day. I don't know what episode. Um, we are here. We are continuing our conversation. This is part three of five of a mini series we're doing about Movies Laurel and I are nostalgic for. We are looking to our past. We are looking at live action. Sorry, no animated movies. And we're going to talk about them. And these are movies we haven't seen in some time. And we really want to think about what makes these movies tick if they still hold up under scrutiny. And uh, I'm excited to be here. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling very excited as well. I'm particularly excited for this episode, even though uh, the first two that we did, I was super stoked for. But the kind of way that we uh, structured this is there were three movies that we knew we wanted to do going in for this nostalgia series. And then we had two slots left because uh, we wanted to do five. And we opened this up to the two of us and we were like, how about each of us put forth a movie um, for those final two slots that was really important to us growing up. And this was my pick. Um, this was my pick this week. And it took me a little while to land on exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew pretty much right off the bat that it had to be a Tim Burton movie. And I think we'll talk a little bit about why uh, Tim Burton was formative for us as young people in the 80s and 90s, um, but especially this film that we're going to talk about today really helped to form a lot of our generation, I think. And it, it's really baked deeply into our subconscious. And that movie is Beetlejuice. Be careful. Just don't say it three times. Yep. You don't then, want to conjure up the ghost with the most. Absolutely. We are going to talk about Tim Burton's Beetlejuice today. This is going to be a fun one to talk about. You know, I kind of take it for granted that there are movies like Beetlejuice out there in the world. But before Beetlejuice, there really wasn't anything ever like it. And I dare say there really isn't much like it since. There is certainly a... Tim Burton-esque style that you can see being formed in Beetlejuice. But even if you look at the entire filmography of Tim Burton as a writer, director, producer of movies, Beetlejuice still kind of stands apart. I mean, it doesn't have Johnny Depp in it, for one. Um, you know, that's very different. Or Helena yeah, Bottom Carter. Right. <laughs> 
It does have Winona Ryder and Michael Keaton, but it it is so bizarre. It is so wacky. I don't know how this movie has a PG rating. Somehow it does. And it was marketed as a family comedy about poltergeists trying to kill humans. And those are the good guys. And um, yeah, we just, we have rewatched it. We've been thinking about it all week. We've been discussing it. There's a ton to get through. So no more intro. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's start peeling back the onion layers on this bizarre once of a kind, once of a lifetime film. But before we do that, Laurel, do your thing. I'll keep it short and sweet. If you want to get in touch with us at The Midnight Myth, hit us up on social media at The Midnight Myth on Twitter, at Midnight Myth Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, We would love to hear from you. The best thing that you can do for the podcast right now, uh, and I just want to hammer this home. We don't want to ask for your money. Uh, You can give us your money if you want to on Patreon or our merch store, but the thing we want most in the world is for you to leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, I can't tell you how important it is for us to have those uh, pieces of feedback in terms of how they make us a better podcast, but also they help us reach uh, more people. They help us stay on the charts and they help other people find out if this is the podcast for them. People trust you when they go to the iTunes store and they see your five-star review on the Midnight Myth podcast. So if you haven't gotten around to it, you've been thinking about it and you want to help us out in a way that costs you no money, that is the way to do it. We would love to have your support. Now, say you do have some extra scratch lying around and you want to support us monetarily. Uh, the best way to do that is on Patreon or you can buy merch from our store. All those things can be found on midnightmyth.com. And today we are super happy to shout out our two newest Patreon supporters. So thank you so much to Catherine and Nana. We are so happy to have you. Uh, we're happy to have all of our patrons who uh, you know support us so generously and help us make this podcast Please watch your Patreon feeds, uh, $5 Patreons and higher for an upcoming bonus episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and that's all from me today. Yeah, and also just to echo those sentiments, podcasting, it's a good bit of work. And when you see those reviews, you're like, ah, oh, it's actually worth the work. Yeah. Thank you. It makes you makes me want to continue to be A, a better podcaster, and B, to actually continue podcasting. Um, because you know, we don't make this any money off of this. It's not our, our profession. It's our hobby. So hearing from you midnight myth listeners, and you are the best podcast listeners out there. I've said that before. I firmly believe that hearing from you really vindicates why we do it. And it helps motivate us to do better than we've done before. Anyway, on with the show, let us do our signature, a briefest of brief recaps. Oh, yes. So this movie, Beetlejuice, it takes place in a Connecticut town with a childless family called the Maitlands. They are taking their staycation two weeks at home to work on their house and the model of the town in the attic. When things go horribly wrong and they crash off a bridge and our two heroes die within the first few minutes of the movie. They're trying to figure out the mechanics of what it means now to be dead and to still be somewhat on earth and to be living in their house. However, every time they leave their house, they get transported to this weird sand dimension where they're subject to um, potential attacks from this bizarre sand snake. This is when they find a book called The Handbook for the Recently Deceased. 
This is designed to acclimate and help them learn what it means now that they are dead. And as this is happening, a new family purchases the house. These are the Dietz. The Dietz are a upper class Manhattan wealthy family that are buying a house in the country to escape and get away from the hustle and bustle. We get the sense that uh, Charles, the father, has been having a tough emotional time coping with his high-powered whatever career he has over there in New York, and he needs to relax, at least he has a heart attack. He comes with his wife, Delia, and his daughter, Lydia, who is quite a goth. They instantly start gutting the house and start making it look like a modern work of art, which is insufferable and infuriating to the good, folky, down-to-earth country uh, ghosts that now live there. The ghosts decide that they need to haunt the Dietz to get them out of the house. When this goes horribly wrong and they realize that they have no skill at being poltergeists, they summon a malevolent spirit named Beetlejuice by saying his name three times to assist them in the haunting, only to instantly regret this as Beetlejuice is quite homicidal, perverted, and bizarre. Realizing they've unleashed a monster on this family while starting to learn to get to know Lydia, who can actually see them when they're not in haunt mode, they decide that they want to keep Lydia in the house, make peace with the Dietz, and they vanquish the evil poltergeist Beetlejuice. And there's a lot of weird stuff in between. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And by the end, we have a harmonious lifestyle. We have a new book, not the handbook for the recently deceased, but the living and the dead from handbook for the recently deceased press uh, that is teaching these families to live together. And because Lydia gets an A on the science, on the math test, hang on. She gets a C on the science test. She gets a C on the science test. She gets an A on the math test. So she gets to float and listen to Harry Belafonte. Yeah. End scene. End scene. That is our recap. Wonderful. There's so much to talk about. There's so much that we can get into. Very brief recap. We've all seen it. I guess I should do spoiler walls before I do the recaps. Yeah, people get it. Yeah, but these are nostalgia You're going to recap movies. a movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've all seen it. It's been around for over 30 years. A real quick question for you. We've asked this in the other two episodes. Do you think this movie holds up to how we imagined it as children when we first saw it? Um, I am going to answer that question with a resounding yes. Um, this movie, when we first saw it, was unlike anything we had ever seen. Uh, it was totally bizarre, strange, unusual, and out there in terms of its concept and its writing and its larger-than-life characters, but also its production value, which uh, was very much invested in stop-motion and practical effects and things that looked um, unsettling, bizarre, and scary, but also really funny and really silly. And those things still look really funny, really silly, and really scary at the same time. Uh, so I, I don't think you can go back and watch this movie and be like, oh yeah, it's just Beetlejuice. You're still going to be pushed to a reaction to every single scene, every character moment, every dance sequence in the middle of the you know dining room. It's always going to make you laugh. It's going to make you cower. It's going to make you stick out your tongue and say, ugh. Uh, I think it elicits a reaction in the same way that it always has done. Uh, and I think that's a testament to a movie that is still holding up as uh, remarkably original. I completely agree 100% with everything that you said. The one thing I'd like to add on top of that yeah. is I think... We're seeing Tim Burton. This was his second major 
picture. Yeah. The first was um, Pee Wee, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which is also a great movie, but very different from this. And we are seeing the Tim Burton style of mashing different aesthetics together that should be contradictory, but somehow are amazing. For example, in the very last scene where Lydia is flying, she's in a school uniform. She's given up the gothic look for her all-girls school. And in it, we see behind her in the wall that is still half gray from what Lydia made it, and half country wallpaper from what the, you know Barbara originally was doing when we first see the movie. And I think that, to me, encapsulates the aesthetic style beautifully of this. We have an idyllic, wonderful country town, which we learned in prepping for this podcast, is a real, actual town in Vermont, not in Connecticut, as it is in the story. So they went to a real town that is just gorgeous, idyllic, something that would come from a novel when you think of a, you know, New England American town mashed up against this horrifically ugly, uh, gothic, bizarre... German expressionism meets surrealism meets M.C. Escher. Bureaucratic, you know, meets an insurance agency or uh, the DMV, if you will. So it, it has these just like contradictory, seemingly opposing aesthetic ideas around every corner. And somehow it pulls together with a, like a cohesive unified experience from start to finish. Yeah. From the first scene where we see the model town with the gigantic spider and the camera zooms out, it lets us know that there's something lurking underneath this beautiful place. This is a place of both wonderful down-to-earth country people and horrible spiders. This is a place with really nice, sweet ghosts that have no interest in wanting to haunt, and a Beetlejuice, who is a malevolent spirit who died presumably from the Black Plague. I think that's in one of my- Oh, no, he lived through the Black Plague. Oh, he lived through the Black Plague. (laughs) He died some other time and became just this horrible, horrible um, poltergeist, for lack of a better term. And that's where I think- Tim Burton lies in his true great movies, the ones that I think really, really last, the ones that I think hold up the most are the ones that somehow bridge this gap between contradictory aesthetics and somehow create a unified idea. It's freshingly original. There is no aspect of this movie that I think um, has faded or gotten worse for wear. Maybe some of the digital effects, but that's, You know, they were dealing with the technology of the time, but everything else is just absolutely high quality and freaking weird. Yeah. You know, I think one of the great strengths of Tim Burton's early filmography, uh, as opposed to his later filmography and the films that have come out in the last couple of years, is the the sense of it being both unrestrained and unrefined. Um, You know, there's something about... You don't get the sense that any performer, particularly Michael Keaton, was ever given the direction to rein it in. Um, You know, that that everybody got to make the biggest choices they could possibly make, um, but also that Tim Burton sort of didn't finesse uh, any of the the things coming out of his brain. He just kind of let them live in their unrestrained quality. Uh, and that carries through to a lot of his other earlier films, like Edward Scissorhands. Um, his later films, some of them benefit from the refined quality, like Big Fish, but some of them 
like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, just feel a little bit too polished to have the same sort of panache that Beetlejuice does. So I think that's one of the things I really appreciate about going back to his earlier films is that they feel so unpolished, but that makes them feel uh, just that much more invigorating to watch. Yeah, there's a great anecdote we found on YouTube, Michael Keaton talking about his role as Beetlejuice, saying that he didn't get it, he took a lot of convincing, and then when he did it, Michael Keaton went to the makeup artist and designed the look himself out of his own imagination yeah. and walked on set thinking like, well, they're either going to tell me I got it all wrong or everything's going to be okay. Walked on set looking like Beetlejuice. Everybody loved it. Nobody told him not to do it. And then he just started going crazy. And he has this great anecdote where he's just like, all right, no one's told me to stop acting this way. Guess I'll keep going. So I'll continue to act this way. And that... You know, Tim Burton really just like let Michael Keaton go and just like let him just do whatever the heck he wanted. And it works. It so amazingly works. And it reminds me, and this is just a not specifically about Beetlejuice, but like what a treasure Michael Keaton is as a professional actor. Really a truly gifted guy. Um, you know, he has turned in so many incredible performances over his career. Um, this one being one of his crowning achievements, obviously. But I, I think one of the the great values of Michael Keaton is that he doesn't have to go full method like a Jared Leto type and you know become his character in daily life and be awful to people uh, that he's working with, but he can slide into these really big outlandish roles, give this theatrical performance, make really out there choices and also give forth uh, an air of incredible authenticity. And I think that's really rare uh, and really powerful as a performer and everything he does. I think he's, he's just fantastic. Lovely. All right. I could gush over Enough this gushing. question yeah. of whether it holds up and how brilliant everybody is that works on this movie all day. Yeah. But that's not really why you folks listen to the midnight myth. You want to know about the history, mythology and philosophy. The first thing I would like to, if you'll permit me, if you yeah, don't mind. please. The one word that overridingly comes to mind when I think about Beetlejuice and its era and its time in pop culture, and if I were asked to describe Beetlejuice, the movie, in one word, the one word I would say is gothic. Yeah. And it comes, it's uh, just a total fun, family-friendly, family-not-friendly gothic extravaganza. <laughs> and I say gothic in the modern sense. So one of the questions that I wanted to investigate is what does it mean to be modern gothic? Where does the term gothic come from? And how does that style then inform and we see through Beetlejuice? And uh, I'd like to go in and do a little bit of history, if that will, if you'll permit me. Absolutely. You know how much I love talking about gothic, big G, little g, historical mythological, literary, etc. The term Gothic refers to a ancient Germanic tribe called the Visigoths. This is where the term came from. The Visigoths were one of the few barbarian, and I say that word in quotes because it's a loaded term, and I could do a whole podcast on that term, but for lack of a better one and for simplicity's sake, we'll say German barbarians who gave the Roman Empire a hell of a time along the Rhine River. They were constantly unifying and disbanding, and the Romans had a really difficult time conquering this and other tribes. Another tribe that you may have heard are called the Vandals, 
And the Vandals, who sacked Rome and destroyed it, it's where we get the root of the word vandalism in uh, remembrance of their sacking of Rome. The Visigoths rose to prominence during the crumbling of the Western Roman Empire and were one of the few German barbaric tribes that carved up the empire and then started forming what we now call medieval Europe. And out of that came the styles that we now commonly think of when we think of Gothic. What do we think of? We think of castles. We think of gargoyles. We think of cathedrals. We think of organ fugues playing in the background. We think of candlelit. We think of this whole idea of Gothic. Now, it's worth noting that if you are, uh, you know, a 7th century Germanic uh, nation building a cathedral, you're not calling it a Gothic cathedral. That's only a term that we now use going backwards. And from time to time, there have been echoes in both architecture, in fashion, in literature that have kind of called back to this spirit of gothicness, to call back to this sort of um, early medieval, late Roman, Germanic style. And it has reverberated through the ages. And every generation has sort of interacted with this in different ways in different times. For example, you may have heard of neo-Gothic architecture. Which is the state style of the British Empire. Look at Westminster Abbey or Tower Bridge and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. So this is all a callback to recapturing the architectural aesthetic that came to define early medieval Europe. Then it comes back. What we see with Tim Burton is sort of a kind of a mishmash of that. We see in the house that um, for one, we see gargoyle-esque style sculptures created by Delia that can only be described as Gothic. These are not sculptures in the respect of like a neoclassicist like Michelangelo, who's making David, where like every single like fine line of the human body is shown. They're a little cruder, a little rougher around the edges, and they're a little terrifying. We see that the entire house is looks like gray stone in the respect that it kind of looks like a castle. We see them build buttresses on the outside of the home, almost like they're rebuilding a neo-Gothic cathedral in the home. So we see this Gothic style pervading. Then we see Beetlejuice himself, the character wearing these outlandishly bizarre costumes, playing and inverting things like carnivals and turning them into slightly more evil, covered with bats. We see the skeletons typing at the typewriters in the, um, you know, the sort of waiting room of um, the recently deceased. What is that place called? They ever named that place? Just the waiting room, yeah. Just the waiting room, right? So in the waiting room and all of the paperwork. So we see this sort of style that because we look at the early medieval era in Western Europe as a period of decay, we commonly refer to it as the Dark Ages. Because it's seen as a less civilized, because life expectancy decreased instead of increased in that period, there is a comfort with death and decay that is implicit in the Gothic style, that there's an element of morbidity around every corner. And the movie Beetlejuice quadruple downs on that morbidity, making the main characters dead, having to navigate 
this gothic landscape, having to live as ghosts, having to be the very thing that gargoyles are supposed to shoo away, right? Like they are the spirits in this. And in this, we see an inversion of the traditional ghost story. The traditional ghost story would start in New York City. It would start with Charles having a nervous breakdown and needing to move to the country and then them getting there and then them working on the house, trying to rebuild their life, being haunted and terrified the whole time. It flips that standard story on its head in every which way. The heroes are two ghosts. They are trying to haunt, but they're terrible at it. Instead of them being afraid, the Dietz, they're actually excited and want to capitalize on this paranormal experience and sell tickets to it. Just imagine that. You have confirmation and proof that your house is haunted. and That there is existence after death. And your first instinct is to charge people to come see it so you could get rich. Yeah. That's insane. Um, and so we have this total inversion on it. And then you have this bizarre character, Beetlejuice, who takes it too far. And our heroes have to learn to respect the living and respect the dead. And the Deets have to respect the dead so that they can live. And it is a perfect gothic modern classic. And it had a huge impact on me in personally. I was a goth kid for a good period of my young like late child, early adult life. Me too. A movie like Beetlejuice was an entry point into that aesthetic. I still have a collection of gargoyles that uh, I keep around the house because I think they're awesome and I always enjoyed them. And then this movie, Beetlejuice, then going to Batman, connected the gothic to the superhero and really helped cement Batman to me as the gothic hero. Oh, he's 100% a gothic hero, which I think we've talked about before. Yeah, absolutely. But Tim Burton being sort of the, one of the main um, aesthetic influences that oriented me towards the goth. So my question for you, long point that I want to get from you, Laurel, why do you think goth as now described in the Tim Burtonian way, modern goth, why is it appealing? I think that's a great question. And I just want to, you know, backtrack a little bit and thank you for making that point. Cause I think it's uh, a really interesting way to get into the goth through the architectural style and the history here, because uh, I always forget that so much of this movie is about architecture and interior design. And you go back and watch it. It's like, Oh, it's all about the clash of tastes more than anything else that drives these two families apart. And eventually they're able to, you know, overcome their taste differences. Um, but the other element of Gothic that has to be brought in here and that is really um, significant to Tim Burton as a creator is the literary genre, which starts in the late uh, 18th, early 19th century, Horace Walpole, Anne Radcliffe, etc. We've talked about it at length before. Um, these are stories that usually take place either in the Middle Ages or in a very antiquarian uh, setting, usually a castle, a ruined castle that's haunted by ghosts or in an old rotting mansion where the living and the dead sort of feel side by side. There is, uh, like I just said, an antiquarian feel about it. It's nostalgic to its core. It's looking back to an earlier time that was definitely a lot worse for a lot of people, but seeking the kind of decaying beauty 
of that era and longing for it. So I think that's just an interesting thing to bring in when we're talking about movies that bring us nostalgia. This is a gothic story where characters are confined within a home that feels old and antiquated, but familiar and comfortable because of that, and trying to preserve the old ways over the new that Delia is bringing in. And I think that sort of gets to answering some of your question about why the Gothic is appealing. There is an antiquarian sense that even the uh, ugly and decaying things of the past are to be longed for because they are old, uh, which once you scrutinize that doesn't really hold so much water, but sort of feels natural to a lot of us. Let me then ask you a, let me make an addendum to that question because that's a great yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Why is goth appealing to you personally? Yeah, so why was it appealing to, why was I a goth kid? Um, and I think the, the core of goth is in one word, it's subversive. Uh, there is a sense that uh, even though there are clearly defined aesthetic um, parameters that usually surround goth. We can recognize goth when we see it. Um, it feels nonconformist. It feels different. It feels like rebellion. And especially for young people, that feels good. Um, rebelling against the established order feels good. Uh, where Tim Burton usually takes this is uh, you know, to the idyllic setting like New England or like the suburbs and contrasts it with that uh, subversive, rebellious goth vibe that is like, no, I rebel against this perfect white picket fence uh, ideal, and I'm showing you the true underbelly of society. And while in um, you know, the adolescent manifestation of that, it is very much just that, adolescent, not entirely mature in how it's critiquing those things, I think a lot of us who were goths or who went through that phase really do think that we're exposing something. And as we grow up, maybe we're able to like actually identify what that thing is that we want to expose more than we did when we were teenagers. But Lydia, to me, feels like she wants to expose something. Um, and she just hasn't quite figured out what that is or how to do it. Yeah, I love that, you know, goth as rebellion. And for me, that did manifest very early in wanting to dress in black, because the one thing, if you're in middle school and you're dressing in all in black, you are rebelling. People are like, look at you, like, who died? And you're like, everyone. My soul. <laughs> We're all dead. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing this to make fun of anybody, because this was very much a part of me growing up, and I still feel... I carry like, goth with yeah. me to this day, you know? Like, I carry that part of my life. My wedding ring is black titanium. Yeah, yeah. I, and I do that because... It is a part of my goth that I carry with me that I wear a black ring proudly saying, yeah, there's a part of me that's still a little goth. Yeah. And, um, you know, to date, you know, I don't wear all black anymore because it really, I'm very pale and it makes me look sickly when I wear <laughs> all black. So I realize that like, I probably don't look my best when I do that, but if I didn't look so sickly when I wear all black, I probably would still do it. Um, but yeah, there's a part of goth uh, for me, that is, and a part of Beetlejuice that is kind of upending a standard order that's kind of saying, okay, there are these set parameters by which you're supposed to behave, you're supposed to dress, you're supposed to like, and goth is a place for me that as a, you know, early teen to young adult, 
gave me a place to go where I can say, no, I'm not going to be that way. Yeah. I'm not going to be like that. I'm supposed to, you're supposed to celebrate life and run away from death. And Goth is saying, let us get a little more comfortable with the dead. Let us actually investigate our own absurdity and morbidity and let us get a little more comfortable with the darkness and the darkness that lives within us and potentially lives with all of us. And in the respect of Beetlejuice, where that kind of permeates is that you have a suicidal teenager in this. Right, yeah. That feels more comfortable with ghosts than with humans, who's coming from a broken home, who has a stepmother who that she does not connect with, and a father who's more interested in squeezing every ounce of money out of everything he can than actually being a decent and good father. And in that, she feels this connection to the Maitlands. And the irony, the beauty, the majesty of, of this movie is that the Maitlands are as square white America as you can get, right? Like they're idyllic. They are highly romanticized characters of white suburbia. And what is it that they teach Lydia? What is it that their connection to Lydia? Don't be like us. Being dead is bad. It doesn't make things any easier. You know, I can think of when Odysseus in the Odyssey travels to the underworld and he sees Achilles and he sees Patrocles and he sees Tiresias and he sees these shades of what it used to be. And I forget the exact line. I should have probably written it down. But they essentially tell him like, dude, stay alive. This is about life. You need to fight for every ounce of life because once it's gone, you never get it back. Once you're dead, you're dead and it sucks. Yeah. And what does this movie say about death? While it reveres the Gothic aesthetic, it makes a very clear argument of what, what it means to be dead. The Maitlands are powerless. They're trapped. They're bored. They're lonely and they're angry. You can see why they become ghosts because they built this home to, to them. They absolutely love. They love it so much. Their vacation is to just stay there, right? Yep. That's how much they love the house. Let's just stay here and work on our house and be in the town. They're separated from the town that they love that, you know, that they build that Adam builds an entire model of they're separated from the house. You know, Barbara was just going to wallpaper with for her vacation. She yeah, couldn't yeah. wait to wallpaper, right? And now, Barbara, all of our vacations are just to wallpaper. Go to Jamaica while you still can. Absolutely. <laughs> Before you, you, you know, you die in a horrible accident on a bridge or, or get, get quarantined. quarantined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so to me, there's something super life affirming. And then where does the character Lydia end up? She ends up studying for school. She ends up wearing her school uniform. She ends up singing and dancing with a beautiful song. So the harmony that we see in Lydia comes from balancing the wanting to be alive and to kind of walking a little bit away from that goth as rebel. She's still strange and unusual. Yeah, she still wears black lace under her uniform. Absolutely. She still carries that with her, but she ends up integrating into society and you get the sense that the character Lydia is ready to be a woman in this world, right? Yeah. 
I yeah, I think that's a wonderful point, and I love that you uh, you just said she's ready to be a woman in this world. Because another thing that I feel like I should say about gothic, especially the literary genre, is that it was um, subversive, especially with regard to sexuality and gender. So often that took the form of like bringing out those you know repressed Victorian values into into the light of day, if you will, even if the book was only lit by moonlight. Uh, it was constantly these books were dealing with the effects of repressed sexuality, but often they also were interested in empowering women. Uh, and this story is about empowering a young girl to become a, a woman and a medium who is the force, who is the bridge that brings two different worlds together, which I think is really cool and really true to the Gothic literary genre. Yep. I 100% agree with that. And in that way, Though this is a movie about the gothic aesthetic, though the movie is implicitly morbid, it is also incredibly life-affirming, which is, I think, the purpose, at least for my journey into goth. My journey as a, you know, as a kid wanting to wear all black and listening to Nine Inch Nails and White Zombie and, uh, you know, pretending that I could, like, conjure Satan and and loving gargoyles, going into that was a way to experience the sort of anti-mainstream American culture, which in the 80s and 90s, that force was intense. Yeah, The force of conformity was everywhere. Everyone wanted kids to be at just like they were in a Steven Spielberg movie. Nice and pleasant and adventurous and good and kind-hearted, and sometimes you're just like, you know what? I'm going to hang out with the, the 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 kids that are wearing black lipstick and listening to Marilyn Manson. Yeah, I'm going to go up into the attic and hang out with the ghosts and the spiders. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes you just you have to veer away from that in order to find your path. And goth is a comfortable place for me and you carry it with you. Yeah. And I really connected rewatching to the character Lydia as a teenager who's unhappy, who is struggling to be expressive, who is constantly being ignored and talked down to by the adults, who like has so much more to contribute than anyone's giving her credit for because she's just a kid. She just needs to like do her role in this pretend family show that they're doing. And here she is bridging the gap between life and death. Yeah. She's also a fairy tale heroine, isn't she? Uh, you know, she is so similar to Cinderella or Snow White or any of these innocent persecuted heroines with the um, semi-absent father and the new overbearing stepmother. The antagonism between the two of them for the first, you know, two thirds of the movie is really intense. Uh, and she feels very much like a fairy tale princess to me. So it's another, uh, you know, piece of mishmash of those aesthetics. Uh, but then we get the kind of wonderful reconciliation of them in the end when they come together as a family, as the whole family, including the Maitlands, comes together. So I think it is really kind of amazing how this movie turns the, uh, you know, fairy godmother, not the fairy godmother, but the evil stepmother on her head and says, no, there is a redemption for this kind of character. There is a way for the innocent persecuted heroine and the evil stepmother to come back together and be a family unit. Yeah, and there is a way to bridge the gap between this folksy morbidity and this life-affirming gothic aesthetic. Yeah. That, you know, so Delia is all about the show of art. 
Yeah. She's all about putting on the performance. She's all about hipness and forward thinking, even if those things are, you know, really tacky. Yeah, being trendy. It's why she her best friend is actually someone she pays in their interior designer named Otho. You know, so it's like it's why she doesn't seem to have friends. It's why her agent walks out on her. And it's why she seems like a really terrible person. And a little detail that I picked up rewatching in preparation for the podcast. The last scene that we see uh, with Delia in it is when she has the sculpture of Beetlejuice. And it's awesome. Yeah. Unlike her other sculpture, which is, you know, not very good. What do I know about sculpture? But I think it's designed to look bad and ugly. And it's designed to make her look like a failed sculptor, not a really, like, accomplished sculptor. Her, um, you know, agent walks out on her. And here she is recreating the Beetlejuice. And in the back, there is a book of her artwork published that based off of this experience, she went out and made more artwork, better artwork, and has now become the successful sculptor she wanted to be at the beginning. So through this brush with actual death, She's learned in other ways to kind of let go the trendy and really just do some amazing artwork inspired by hanging out with this malevolent spirit named Beetlejuice. And she becomes a successful artist because of that. I think that's just an amazing arc instead of killing the, uh, you know, the evil yeah. stepmother or punishing or the evil stepmother. Out. Yeah. In the end, they all become a family. And I think that's really awesome. Yeah. Well, and isn't her collection called Images from the Afterlife or Images of the Afterlife? Something like that. And I think that's key is that it's not just that she was making bad artwork before. It's that she was making meaningless artwork before. She was just trying to chase trends. She was just trying to be cool, be hip. Um, But now she's making artwork that's meaningful. And she's doing that by looking to these sort of antiquarian Gothic values. Whereas Lydia, who was so stuck in the antiquarian Gothic values that she couldn't even see the value of life, is now able to look forward a little bit. So they've kind of switched places, or they've at least found a harmonious balance in their own outlooks, and that has brought these two characters to a place of harmony. Yeah, that's amazing. Let's, um, let's move on, because I know we have more that we want to talk about. Yes. Uh, So one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, especially because this movie spends uh, some of its time in one world and some of its time in another, is how it creates its own uh, afterlife mythology and where it pulls those inspirations for this new Tim Burton afterlife mythology. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, most, if not all, cultures and religions have some conception of the afterlife or some belief that the human body is not the end, uh, that there is some essential part, a soul or whatever you would like to call it, that goes on after the physical body has died and decayed. Um, And the question that, you know, suffuses a lot of those religions and those cultures is where does that essence go? What happens next? Where do we go 
after we stop living our embodied existence on Earth. In the Greek tradition, you would go to probably the underworld, uh, which is a realm under the dominion of Hades, which has these various countries like Tartarus, where you would be tortured for all of eternity, or the Elysian Fields, which is a paradise for the virtuous, or you might go to the Asphodel Metals, which is a literal medium place if you were not great but not the worst person, so you're just going to total mediocrity forever. In the Christian tradition, you're going to have the binary heaven and hell with the pearly gates or the you know lake of fire, uh, but I think that the tradition that Beetlejuice is pulling from the most, and it does have elements of both the Greek and the Christian and several others, but I think the one it's pulling from the most is actually the Egyptian uh, conception of the afterlife. Oh, I am so excited to talk about this. Everyone hears me on this podcast talk about Rome a lot. That's because that's my favorite era of history. I literally have a tattoo of uh, honoring Roman history, and I am known as like a amateur Romanist. But the era of history I know the second most about, which a lot of people don't know, is ancient Egypt. And we rarely get to talk about ancient Egypt on the podcast. I'm actually like, I'm shaking with excitement, literally. Got a on, yeah. Yeah, all right. But anyway, I interrupted you. Go on. Yeah, so the reason that I was first drawn to, you know, researching this, and I'm glad that you have a background in this because this is not necessarily my area of expertise, but I did a little bit of research. But the reason that I latched on to the Egyptian afterlife is that their afterlife is usually known as duat, which is sometimes translated to the netherworld, which is also the term that's used for the afterlife, the world that you can enter through the door you draw with chalk um, in Beetlejuice. So I was like, hmm, I wonder if this gets us somewhere. And then I remembered that, oh yes, how do the ghosts in Beetlejuice figure out what to do? They have a funerary text known as the Handbook for the Recently Deceased that tells them how to navigate the afterlife. Who else has a funerary text that is written by the living for the dead that they are equipped with as they walk into the afterlife trials that they are going to have to face? The Egyptians. It's called the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and there are actually several funerary texts that outline the complex rites and rituals that you'll have to pass through, not only as a living person assisting the dead, but as a soul after it has departed the body. Fun fact, that life essence that leaves the body after death is known as a ka, which is something that Derek knows quite a bit about. And sometimes they're in wheels. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's funny in our living room, we have my grandmother when I was really, really young, went and did a trip to Egypt and she bought back a papyrus that it's not an actual ancient Egyptian. It's a replica and it's framed and it is a piece of the ancient Egyptian book of the dead. So every time we are watching a Midnight Myth project that we're going to discuss, we are sitting literally underneath the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So it's right there hanging over us, and we've still never talked about it. So I'm excited that we're getting to do it with Beetlejuice. Uh, So essentially, what is going to happen after your death? Um, One very important thing that happens is that the living who are close to you will mummify your body to preserve your physical body um, and the elements of it so that you can return to it, your life essence can return to it should you be granted new life at the end of your trials. But your life essence is going to head through uh, the entrance in your tomb 
to Duat, the netherworld. And you're going to have to face a ton of obstacles like lakes of fire. There is a serpent god called Apep who wants to eat your soul, not unlike a sandworm. Uh, although the sandworms, I think, are a very clever Dune reference in Beetlejuice. But with your trusty Book of the Dead in hand, you navigate these obstacles and you head through to meet with a goddess named Maat. She is a goddess of balance, truth, and justice. And she's the first kind of gate that you're going to reach before you can really find out if you've been granted eternal life. Then, if you pass this trial, you'll head to uh, a court and you're going to testify or you're going to give what's known as negative confession before 42 adjudicator gods. So you're going to have to address each of the 42 gods by name, individually, and declare a sin that you have not committed. Can I just interject real quick? Yeah, please. That is not just a ancient Egyptian death ritual. That is the reverse confession. So you go and say, I have not killed the weak. Yeah, I yeah. have not stolen my neighbor's gold. I have not... Uh, you know, prune the hedges, whatever. And that is a tradition amongst confession of all of the ancient Near East cultures, the ancient Babylonians, Persians, Hittites, Assyrians, all have documented cases of the reverse confession as nice. part of the underworld, um, which just goes to show that, you know, ancient Egypt was not in a vacuum. The cultures were communicating and sharing and part of an international community. And a lot of the mythic traditions kind of melded. Um, we know the most about Egypt because so much of ancient Egypt has survived in terms of physical evidence. But anyway, I didn't I, mean to interrupt. I love that. That's what the Midnight Myth is all about, is this exchange of information and universal themes. I love it. Um, so say you make it past those 42 adjudicator gods. Next, you're going to meet with Anubis, who is the dog-headed god, who is uh, going to put you through a, a trial that you'll probably recognize once we describe it. He's going to weigh your heart, uh, which has been preserved, against a feather. And the feather is usually a manifestation of Maat, that goddess of truth and justice. It's an ostrich feather. Um, your heart has to be the same weight or lighter than the feather in order to pass this trial. It will be weighed down with sin, but it will be uh, lightened by good deeds in life. So you have to hope that your heart is lighter than a feather. If you are judged impure and your heart is heavier than the feather, there is a nifty little crocodile dog monster there called Amit who will eat your soul. It will devour you and you will cease to exist forever. You will, in essence, be sent to the Lost Souls room in Beetlejuice's netherworld. But if you are able to uh, pass the test, if your heart is lighter than the feather, you're granted uh, you know, audience with Osiris, who is the lord of the underworld, and he can finally grant you access to the afterlife, uh, which is depicted in the Book of the Dead as a field of rushes. Once you get to the afterlife, it's not just paradise. You don't just sit around and lounge and get fed grapes you get the opportunity to cultivate a field of reeds. You continue to work, essentially. You don't just stop. You don't just merge with the gods. You get the opportunity to continue working, which I think is so fascinating and feels so much like what Barbara and Adam want, what they want to achieve in their ideal afterlife, is to be able to continue improving their home, to continue working, uh, that is a that's a paradise for them. So I think that's a really 
kind of fun way that these two traditions have worked together in a way that's not entirely one-to-one, not entirely Egyptian-inspired, but uh, the the values have been sort of primed together. Thank you for going through that. Just a, a few things I'd like to call out. Yeah. Since we're talking ancient Egyptian history as it relates to Beetlejuice, one, if you live in the, um, you know, in America, in the Northeast, and you want to learn about ancient Egyptian history, the one place I'd say that you have to go to is the Metropolitan Museum of Art and walk through their ancient Egyptian exhibit. Um, I've seen a lot of ancient Egyptian exhibits. Technically, there's more Egyptian relics in the British Museum in London, which I've seen. But in terms of layout, the Metropolitan Museum gets it right. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful exhibition. Well, even just the beauty of it is that it is impossible to walk through it any other way but chronologically. Mm. It starts in the pre-dynastic period and it ends in the Hellenistic period. So as you make your way through the exhibit, you are seeing different eras of Egyptian history and you can learn about each era just by reading you know, all of what the artifacts mean, where they were found, what they represented, etc. So I just want to throw that out there. A lot of the ancient Egyptian history that I've gotten came from a class that I took in which one of the projects was to go to that museum and to study how that museum was laid out. And it is a fantastic interactive way that you can literally see the ancient Egyptian relics and learn about it. So I just wanted to plug that while we're talking Egyptian history, because we might not get this opportunity in the podcast in the near future. Yeah, once you're once they're open again, go there. But I'm sure the Met has uh, virtual exhibitions right now that you can tour virtually. Once you can go there without the spread of a plague, do yeah, it. And, yeah. and if you are in New York, if you're not from there, and you're looking for something really cool to do that is really educational, the Metropolitan Museum of Art itself is a treasure but in particular, its ancient Egyptian exhibit is stellar. And uh, they have a whole Egyptian temple in it as well. They do. That's pretty cool. That being said, there are a few fundamental similarities between the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead I'd like to highlight and some differences that I'd like to highlight as well as it pertains to Betelgeuse. And I'm simply doing this just to talk ancient Egyptian history. One, the central belief in the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead, one of the central beliefs, I should say, is you can take it with you. The material objects of the living can can pass with you to the netherworld. That is exactly what we see here. We have a material relationship between uh, Barbara and Adam and their house. They're able to live in the house. They're able to touch it. They're able to feel it. As they are negotiating and navigating this new netherworld, their connection to this physical place is completely and totally uh, solidified. Just as an ancient Egyptian death ritual, your place, you're, you're doing all of these rituals to help Egypt prosper. It is about a material relationship with the land and the objects, and you can take those objects with you. Um, another way that they are very similar. It is highly bureaucratic. There are s- like set rules that have no negotiation and no deviation. If you do any of them incorrectly in ancient Egypt, the entire process doesn't work. That starts with mummification. Um, that starts with how you are entombed. That starts with the spells written on the tomb. Every Egyptian tomb has a version of the ancient Book of the Dead so that when you arise after your mummification, you have something that you can read. Uh, Third, archways and passageways. We see them draw a door, 
And that door gets them in deeper into the netherworld and into the next phase, which is to learn the rules and regulations of what it means to be dead. Every ancient Egyptian tome has an archway in which the uh, falcon-headed god Horus will come and grab you and take you to the next phase. So you have to pass through a barrier, a physical barrier between the world of the living and the world of the dead to ascend deeper into it. Another similarity. Um, Three, or difference, major, major difference. The entire purpose of the ancient Egyptian death rituals is to continue the flood of the Nile so that the ancient Egyptians could continue to eat. One of the reasons ancient Egypt was a successful society for so many thousands of years, despite all of the war, famine, and climate changes that happened in the ancient world, was that the Nile flooded on a regular basis and it deposited mineral-rich soil to which they could cultivate and grow. In long-winded way, they always had food. They never starved to death. Versus other societies that may have had problems with famine and getting food, the ancient Egyptians had a regular um, way that they could grow food regardless of what the natural world was doing. And to ensure that this would continue to flood the way it did, came all of these regulations around death rituals because from dying, from death, there comes life. From death, you can be reborn into life. So only through doing death rituals correctly, in particular, was the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was the most important person living, and their death had to be perfect because it was the Pharaoh who would ensure that the once died and reborn, that the Nile would flood and then life could be reborn in Egypt. Long-winded point to say it is about the living, right? And only about the living. The dead and the living are interacting on a material level the whole time, completely aware of themselves. The bureaucracy is so the living can have an interaction with the death. Beetlejuice, the bureaucracy exists so the living do not have a relationship with the death. They are trying to hide themselves. They do not want to make themselves known. The uh, Adam and Barbara get in trouble because they allow themselves to get photographed. They allow Otho to take the book. Um, they're they're doing a bad job haunting, which is exposing them. So they want they they want the dead to be held from the living. And where the conclusion of the book is is the breakdown of that barrier, saying no, it's okay for the living and the dead to have a relationship with each other. So towards the end, it becomes more like ancient Egypt in that respect. All that long-winded points to say there is certainly an air of ancient Egyptianness in the way it approaches the underworld, that it is a highly regulated, it has a, a clear set of what to do, what not to do. Just like an ancient hieroglyph, not easy to read, so is the recent handbook for or the handbook for the recently deceased part of me, not an easy book to read. It's very confusing. It's really easy to get it wrong. And if you do, you just might let a malignant spirit kill life like the way that the Maitlands accidentally bring Beetlejuice out who tries to kill all life. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for uh, fleshing that out and showing some of the similarities and differences because the last thing I want to do is gloss over it and be like, this is based on ancient Egypt. Um, but what I think is really cool about the uh, the 
very specific afterlife that Tim Burton has created is that, yes, it's going to pull some of these universal ideas from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. It's also going to feel, in some cases, very Greco-Roman. We're going to have touch Juno. points. Yeah, we're going to have Juno, uh, who Actual is the caseworker named after, uh, you know, the Roman name for Hera, the a Roman uh, goddess. Yeah, a Roman goddess. Um, and then we're going to have the... Uh, unholy marriage of uh, Beetlejuice and Lydia at the end that uh, that resembles in some ways the marriage of Hades and Persephone. Uh, So there are elements of uh, different forms of mythology that are used to create something that feels original and new. Um, And, you know, you throw in a little bit of M.C. Escher and a little bit of German expressionism and uh, a little bit of carnival fun and camp, and it looks like nothing you've ever seen before. But the key to this is being like, okay, where do the core beats of this come from, and why do they feel familiar to us, and what does that tell us about the sort of interconnected relationship of humankind and human myths? Oh, and one other point about ancient Egypt, if you'll permit me to backtrack, course, a similarity yeah. and a difference. Yeah. The uh, netherworld, the, in, in almost every ancient religious tradition, um, an ancient mythic tradition, the place where the dead live. It's a physical place that exists in the world. Yeah, right? yeah. It's not a place that's separate. Kind of like this. This world of the dead is existing simultaneously right on top of the world where the living is. The dead and the living cohabitate the same place. Yeah, it's just in this. you're able to see different things based on your perspective. Yeah, and if you're dead, you're able to go to other places. You have, you know, magical powers that you're not constrained by all the, the normal laws of physics that are a, a live person is, but they're the same actual place. And a, a live person could theoretically travel to the underworld, which is what Beetlejuice is trying to do to Lydia in the same way that a live person can travel to, you know, the way we mentioned Odysseus who travels to the underworld. Um, That's another similarity that they have. But a major difference between the conception of the underworld in Betelgeuse and ancient Egypt, and I'd say all mythological traditions of the underworld, there's no gods. Yeah. There's no gods. There's one character who's named after a Roman goddess, Mm -hmm. but is clearly a, a woman who killed herself. You know, like if you commit suicide, the sin of suicide means that you are going to be working in the bureaucracy. You'll become a civil servant in the afterlife. You know, which they joke about. So, you know, you have to serve the bureaucracy. But if you didn't, you don't have to serve in the bureaucracy of the underworld. Um, So it seems like a form of punishment. No one that's working in the bureaucracy seems happy or is enjoying it. Um, But there are no gods and there's no God. It is fundamentally deity-less. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting distinction because at the end of the day, most of these ancient traditions are about appeasing these gods. You know, so I talked a little bit about the importance of the Pharaoh. While the Pharaoh lives on earth, the Pharaoh is Horus, the falcon-headed god, um, and the son of Osiris. And... This kind of wax and wanes and changes a little bit depending upon who's in charge. But fundamentally, through most of ancient Egyptian history, this central myth around who the pharaoh is reigns true. So as the pharaoh is living, they are the living embodiment of Horus on earth, the falcon-headed god. They are ruling Egypt. When they die and get mummified, they then become Osiris, right. the king of the underworld, the king of the mummies. And by doing that cycle... Then the new pharaoh is crowned. The new pharaoh then becomes 
Horus, and then when they die, they become Osiris. They're replicating the cycle of the Nile. So this cycle of pharaonic history is seen as the exact cycle of the Nile flooding and giving uh, mineral-rich deposits. Yeah. So by pleasing the pharaoh, you're pleasing the gods, and by ensuring that the pharaoh has the correct death, you are ensuring the gods in the afterlife, which then lets life get reborn. Even in our modern conceptions of the afterlife as heaven and hell, these are about appeasing deities or demons. So if you are a bad person and you go to hell, Satan gets another one and gets a little stronger. Yeah. If you're a good person and go to heaven, the angels have another one, God gets a little stronger. So it's about linking your deeds in this life to the deeds in the afterlife, which will then appease your deity or your God. Um, so it's interesting that Burton undeifies the afterlife. And this is a thought that's just occurring to me now as we compare, you know, ancient Egypt to Beetlejuice. And I wonder if you have any thoughts. Do you think that's a significant point? Do you think it means something or am I just barking up the wrong tree? I do kind of think it's significant. I think this is a really interesting point that, uh, you know, we have all these echoes of classical myth but we don't have the element of gods. And I think it's all wrapped up in Barbara's quote when she's talking to Lydia about the value of life. She says, being dead really doesn't make things any easier. And the truth is, being dead is a lot like being alive. You're just kind of stuck in your house and can't do anything. Wait, that's kind of like being alive. Um, that's anyway, like quarantine. Yeah, hang on. That's like what I'm doing right now. But after death, it looks kind of the same. You're still going to have to wait if you want help. If you want a caseworker, you're going to have to go and sit in a waiting room with a bunch of unsavory people. Uh, there are still uh, industries. There's still a guy who has to mop the netherworld floors. Somebody has to do it. And just like life, uh, you know, a lot of us still believe in uh, supernatural entities, or we believe in God. We believe in gods. We believe in something bigger than ourselves. Uh, but there hasn't been so much proof of that. And because of that, we kind of do our own thing. So people might capitalize on other people's problems. You might end up with a Beetlejuice who says, all right, you have a problem. I will make money off of, uh, you know, ousting that problem. Uh, so it's, it's just this reminder that like, hey, uh, you can't rely on the gods, quote unquote, or you can't rely on something bigger than yourself to make things better. You have to be able to uh, rely on yourself for that. And it, it drives home, once again, the value of life, especially for a character like Lydia, who is the one who's struggling the most in this story and doesn't have support. She gets the support from dead people saying, hey, stay alive a little while. You're pretty great and it's worth it. Yeah, there are no answers There's when no you die. Answers. You get a confusing book that it's impossible to read that doesn't really help you at all. You get a caseworker who is overloaded, has too many cases, and can't really provide you any real guidance. Um, and you become easily susceptible to a predator willing to, you know, take advantage of your circumstances yeah. for themselves in Beetlejuice. There are no answers in death. If you die and get to be one with the gods, you then become a god in, in many ways, right? Like in the ancient Egyptian sense, you literally do. If you are a modern you know, Judeo-Christian and you get to go to heaven, 
And now that you are in heaven, well, you know, you know everything. You're in heaven, right? You have the answers at that point. In this version, there's no answer. There's no, like, now that we're dead, we understand this or that. It is just another mystery. And in fact, there are other versions of death to the dead. Yeah. You know, you can still die as a dead person. It's really hard. But if you do, there's a worse fate than just dying. And in that respect, it is very modern. It is very postmodern, I should say, that there are no real answers. There is no real truth. And in many ways, your search for truth is silly. You might as well just do your best to get a good grade on the test. And shake, shake, shake Sonora. One last thing I'd like to bring up, because I know we're pushing up on time. Yeah. That was just really significant. And we haven't done a lot of talking this episode about is the character Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice Beetlejuice is barely in this movie. Beetlejuice has a commercial uh, in the end of the first act, but he doesn't actually appear on screen, um, you know, as a character in the story until past the halfway mark uh, in this movie. It's about 47 minutes in. It's kind of crazy. It's amazing that, the movie's called Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is barely in it. And easily the best performance is Beetlejuice. You just said it three times in one sentence. Oh, uh, we're all screwed. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to point out that we didn't talk about Beetlejuice a ton, but that's really because Beetlejuice is barely in this movie. And Beetlejuice is a catalyst for arriving at all of these, um, all of these big revelations. That life is valuable, uh, that it's possible to be redeemed from being an evil stepmother, uh, and that there can be communication between people who don't understand each other. Absolutely. Anything else? Uh, this has been awesome. I feel great. I can't wait to do our next one. And until next time, guys, be kind. Okay, I believe you. Okay.